Kathy, and I am trying desperately to get one last podcast out in 2022. I'm sitting here in a hotel room in Budapest on New Year's Eve. And of course, all I want to do is record a podcast and get it out to you guys. Uh, The truth is that I am really looking forward to this year being over. And I'm really hoping that 2023 is a significantly better year for me. And honestly, I hope that for you too. Even if 2022 was a banner year, I hope that 2023 is even better. Uh, I know I promised the Glenn Beulah um, investigation for my next podcast, but sorry, I decided to go in a different direction. Um, I'm actually going to do something about an artifact that we have in the museum, which is called a widow's mite. And a widow's mite is a form of currency that's mentioned in the Bible. It's a little piece of metal, and it is of very, very small um, economic value, even at the time uh, that it would have been in circulation, which is a little over 2,000 years ago. But it factors into a case of an evidentiary case in paranormal history. Paranormal enthusiasts bear an almost unsupportable weight when it comes to our interest. That's if we care to carry it. We must constantly defend our interests or find new ways to describe it so as not to be thought mentally deficient or gullible. And some of us are okay with being seen that way. I, for one, don't care what people think of my intellect. I'll let it stand on its own, and sometimes it's going to fall. People who have faith in the existence of the paranormal must provide proof of that existence in a way that people of other religions or faiths are not required to. That's not to say that religious or spiritual beliefs is, are accepted on face value, but rather that the belief in, say, angels for a Christian is primarily taken by non-Christians, not as truth, but as a tenet of faith. The faith itself is accepted. The believer's faith is respected, accepted, and often admired and coveted. How many times have you heard the phrase, I wish I had that kind of faith? Usually, it's in times of trauma and grief. One never hears that about the paranormal. The paranormal, devoid of religion or divine or demonic aspects, is the subject of ridicule, and its believers or adherents are the subjects of mockery. It's foolishness, these ghosts and goblins. To me, it's semantics. Paranormal investigators, and please assume the air quotes, desperately want to find proof of the existence of something to show that their belief is valid. Their interest is worthy. It's a conundrum, like wanting to be popular. If people get wind of that, you instantly lose your cool factor. Your cred is gone. A gentleman came into the shop the other day, about a week before Christmas, and asked me, Do you know of any houses that let people investigate? He didn't ask if I knew of any locations that had activity or if there were any places locally that had a reputation for being haunted or if there was a place worthy of research or even if there was a family in need of assistance. No, he just wanted to get into a house, break out his equipment and hunt some ghosts. Guys, that's a dilemma for me. I get it. We want experiences. We want evidence. We want proof, if not for others and for ourselves. But something is unsettling about people going into a house that has strange activity just for themselves. It's like a visit to a zoo, only the inhabitants of the house, the spectral inhabitants, are not there to be saved or cared for or even protected. The idea of just going into a place to get something you want or need, a thrill perhaps, it's inappropriate to me. But I don't know if that's wrong. It it does feel bad, though, and in a way that visiting a battlefield doesn't. 
And maybe again, that's just me splitting hairs, because I think the same way about places of significant public tragedy. Perhaps the approach to where and why we invest or investigate or research locations is more nuanced than I immediately thought. But what proof is there? Is there any? In the centuries of study, are there any cases that stand the test? Certainly, there are interesting historic cases, although nothing is without suspicion. One such case is that of the widow's might and a few famous Americans. In the annals of psychical research, the case is considered evidentiary, though of course not proof. As the 20th century dawned, the spiritualist movement was still strong in the United States. The Civil War had left hundreds of thousands of people, perhaps millions, with questions about the next stage of life once the body dies. The profound violence, loss, and the sheer magnitude of the war shook the collective faith of Americans and changed forever its relationship with death. Sons, fathers, brothers, and husbands went off to war and were never heard from again. The idea of the good death was not achieved. The body had not returned to the earth. The process that one had come to believe was necessary was not adhered to. The protocol of dying, death, and the commitment of the body to the ground, the release of the soul, all of these ceremonies were, well, shaken and shook, in many cases, completely lost. People did not turn away from faith, but they did turn to other avenues to find the answers to their questions, and yes, to find closure. And that is the last word from a loved one lost in the soil of Antietam or some unnamed creek bed or field. There were others now who claimed to be able to speak with the dead, others who could get those messages through. Ministers, preachers, teachers, and all manner of regular people were interested in the new communications. These communicants were no longer considered necromancers. In fact, they set up shops and held open discussions and readings. Why, even the President of the United States was suspected of having attended these meetings, both while alive and, to some people, after. In 1904, the world was quieter. But people were still reeling from their losses, and the subject was still fresh and interesting. However, the doubts, judgment, and skepticism is not unique to our era. People were just as likely to roll their eyes in 1904 as they are now. However, it was a relatively new interest, and people of import had invested themselves in it. Considered a valid research subject, there were clubs and societies and all manner of meetings to determine the truth, as well as it could be determined. This was a time when wireless radio was new and the automobile was just hitting the road. Massive changes in technology were happening, greater ever than what we see now, because these advances were marvelous and wondrous, whereas now we have an acceptance, even an expectation for the miraculous. This was not naive. It was curiosity and earnest wonder at the boundaries of nature and the human experience, colored perhaps by religion and an almost absolute belief in the idea of a universal clockmaker, people were still stepping outside the limitations of scripture and suddenly examining the wondrous. The study of psychic phenomena was tied completely to mediumship. It was the survival of personality after bodily death that consumed people, do I stay me? Is my son still in existence? Do we retain our memories and ourselves? When Can we continue to interact with the living? And so it was at one of these circles or seances, as we more commonly know them, that a curious piece of evidence was revealed. 
As I said before, people of note, ministers, writers, doctors, politicians, all found themselves interested in the subject. At the time, one might open oneself up to ridicule, but it was easier to hide the interest, and it was less likely to be damaging if word got out that you sought a conversation with the other side. Life was more private in general, but also information flowed much slower than it does now. One of the notables of the time was a Lutheran minister who also manufactured dictionaries. His name was Dr. Isaac K. Funk. Those of a certain age now will instantly recognize the name as the purveyor of Funk and Wagnalls, the dictionary of note. A man of learning and of faith, he also devoted his time to the spiritual movement, attending readings and seances, and he had done so for many years. It was at one of these sittings that he was the recipient of a piece of information and evidence that, barring a hoax, is considered to be extremely supportive of the reality of spirit communication. Please prepare yourself. This is a 19th to 20th century mind-blowing, not a 21st century mind-blowing, and yet its simplicity renders it very compelling. In 1903, Funk attended a sitting of a spiritualist or a medium, as we might say today. And during the reading, a formerly living man by the name of John Rakestraw spoke to him. He, Rakestraw, was unknown to Funk, but he crossed the veil with a message from a friend of Funk's who had pushed off this mortal coil in 1887. And this man was Henry Ward Beecher. If this name sounds familiar, it's likely because Beecher was a famous minister, abolitionist, and brother to Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Also, Beecher spent a few years completely embroiled in a scandal related to an adulterous affair he allegedly had with a friend's wife. It's a big mess, and I can go on record as saying I think he was guilty. But seriously, go look it up, because it's convoluted and ridiculous, and evidence that maybe the good old days were more like today than we think. Anyway, he was friends with Funk, and they shared a mutual friend in a man named Charles Edwin West. West was a well-known and respected educator and an expert on currency. He was an avid coin collector as well, and he remained utterly loyal to Beecher during the scandal. All three of these guys read in the same circle and no doubt knew each other fairly intimately. West died in 1900. <clears throat> Funk, while curious about the phenomena people experienced and thought to be communication with the dead, was a bit more skeptical. He thought that most cases, if not all cases, were cases of secondary personalities and not the dead themselves. However, his experience in 1903 gave him pause to reconsider. It seems that prior to his death, West had loaned to Funk a widow's mite. A widow's mite is a coin of very little value, less than a penny by today's standards. It's featured in the Bible and used as an example of relative value. Gospel of Mark. Then he, Jesus, sat down opposite the offering box and watched the crowd putting coins into it. Many rich people were throwing in large amounts, and a poor widow came and put in two small, small copper coins worth less than a penny. He called his disciples and said to them, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the offering box than all of the others, for, all they, for they all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in what she had to live on everything she had, end quote. Funk borrowed the coins to photograph and use in the dictionary. He believed fully that he returned the coins prior to West's death. Imagine his surprise when a spirit, the aforementioned John Rakestraw, called him out about it. Of course, Mr. Rakestraw was not an associate of Mr. Funk's, but had been sent from the other side by Henry Beecher. 
Beecher, as mentioned, was a close friend of both Funk and West and was particularly upset that the coins had not been returned. When Funk expressed doubt and asserted that the coins had in fact been returned, Rakestraw was adamant and confirmed that Beecher said the coins had not been returned, but were in fact still being housed in a, quote, iron container, end quote, of some sort. Let's recap. Funk is at a seance. A spirit named John Rakestraw has come through on behalf of Funk's friend, Henry Beecher, who has directed Rakestraw, the spirit, to give Funk a dressing down for not returning two ancient coins to their mutual friend, who is also deceased, Mr. West. Neither Beecher nor West were reportedly present at the seance. Beecher has sent someone from the other side to bust his living friend's balls. Funk was adamant that he had returned the coins and expressed that to the spirit, but he found himself somewhat annoyed by the accusation. Upon returning to work the next day, he searched his office and found nothing. Shrugging it off momentarily, he felt vindicated, yet the whole thing is strangely specific. After all, he had borrowed those coins from that particular person, and it was just like Beecher to be a prick in that way. Hypocrite. But he really thought he'd return them. Still, it weighed on him, and he asked his office manager to double-check. Well, you've probably guessed it. A few days later, his office manager informed him that they had, in fact, found the widow's mites. They had been stored in a safe in a lower office, in a box, an iron box, in that safe. Now, the argument against psychic phenomena being evidence of the survival of personality after death is that the information that comes through invariably is known to someone living who is present. This would still, of course, mean that we are reading minds, but that's not as cool as dead people talking to us. Still, there is the argument that Funk did not know it. He ordered it returned. He believed it had been returned. It had not been returned. Hmm. So this falls again into evidence and not proof, but it's pretty good anecdotal evidence, and it definitely shows what a pain in the ass feature could be. In the Paranormal Museum, we have one of these widow's mites. It's a tiny piece of metal worth nothing except for its historical value. And I think that that's pretty important. These little quiet things can be more meaningful than we give them credit. Life is in the minutiae. Don't forget that. You can lose so much by forgetting the little details. And remember, something doesn't have to be loud to be important. All right, you guys, happy new year. If you have any thoughts on the subject, please uh, send me an email, kathy at paranormalbooksnj.com. And of course, I invite you to come and visit us in 2023. And my question for you, and to see if you guys are listening all the way to the end, is, is it a lie if you mean it at the time? That's it, guys. Happy new year.